Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Some tales are so old that us modern folk, rushing around in our busy lives, constantly looking at our phones, we don't pay much attention to them. But something I've come to realize is that old doesn't mean gone. And the vicious, most vile beings from the bowels of folklore are still very capable of rising from whatever hell cave they've been waiting in and unleashing their mighty sadism on us all even though we have Wi-Fi now. One of those creatures in particular keeps me up at night, a feral beast called Rougarou. I learned about this particular monstrosity just last year. I was in New Orleans for the Mardi Gras Bacchanal, and I decided I needed some peace and quiet as the festivities were winding down. I spent my last evening in town at a smoky blues club, soaking up the sweet sounds of what my whiskey on the rocks had convinced me was the smoothest voice I'd ever heard. After the singer set, I approached and paid my compliments, even bought him a drink. His name was Frank, and he was grateful for the booze. Said he was giving it up for Lent the very next day and wanted to have his fill while he could. I'm sure I nodded along politely, but I was losing interest fast. Small talk about religious traditions doesn't really do it for me. I'm what my grandma would have called a skeptic, when what she really meant was a heathen. But she was much too polite for that. Sensing my skepticism, Frank assured me that Lent is much more than tradition and observance. It's all about sacrifice and learning how to do without in a world where so much temptation is right there at our fingertips. Frank hesitated then, like he wasn't sure if he should say what he was about to say. He decided in favor and uttered, in my family, observing Lent keeps Rougarou from sniffing you out. What's the Rougarou, you might ask? I sure as hell did. Well, Frank told me there's a thing that roams the swamps of Louisiana. This abomination is part wolf, part human. Some might consider it a werewolf on account of that, but Frank assured me it was much worse. This monster doesn't just appear when the moon is in its full glory. Nah, you can't predict when Rougarou will creep out from its bayou lair. Some say 
it's when it catches the whiff of a sinful Catholic. Because its sole mission, its entire reason for existence, is to consume every godless miscreant it comes across. That's why Frank's parents told him and his siblings to always, always be devout. Now, my parents would whoop me when I rebelled, and I thought that was pretty bad. But not nearly as bad as a bloodthirsty killing machine that might rip me to shreds. I told Frank I was going to have to try that one out on my kids. But Frank was too deep in thought to acknowledge my parenting breakthrough. He took a pull from his whiskey and told me that Rougarou used to be a person. Maybe someone the French settlers brought over when they came to this place. A man who got cursed by another beast of the same ilk. Or else transformed into a grisly, wretched fiend because of his own sinful ways. But to be honest, Frank wasn't interested in how it was created. If a half-wolf, half-man is staring at you with glowing eyes and breath that reeks of death, you're not really concerned with his origin story. Frank ordered another round, on my tab, by the way, and said the best way to explain Rougarou wasn't by talking up its legend. Nah, to really understand this creature, Frank said he'd tell me about the time, not too long ago, when Rougarou stalked a trio of teens around the outskirts of New Orleans and left a trail of carnage in its wake. You're listening to Run, Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes. And this is Episode 5, Rougarou. Frank made sure I understood that New Orleans is a big city. But its neighborhoods, those are small towns. And the small town he grew up in was a French Catholic enclave called Thibodeau. It's right on the edge of the city, up against the bayou. That's where these kids lived too, and where some of them died. But Frank was getting ahead of himself. The best place to start this story is where most things for God-fearing folks begin, in church. It was Ash Wednesday, and three teens were kneeling before Father Gaston to get their foreheads marked. They looked solemn enough. It was a solemn occasion, after all. But the smirks they traded as they stumbled back to their pews told a different story. They weren't taking this seriously. Why should they? They were the cool kids at Catholic school, the rebels, the ones who recited the Lord's Prayer with their fingers crossed and weren't afraid of using God's name in vain when the situation called for it. And of course, like all teenagers, they liked to push the envelope wherever they could. Like Helene, who made her skirt just short enough that she stood out, but not so short that it warranted a reprimand. Or Davy, who only spoke to teachers in the form of a question. It was a subtle torment because it was so unbelievably annoying, but didn't really break any rules. Or Leon, who... Actually, Leon didn't screw around like that. He was a nervous kid, but he loved being with his brave, don't-give-a-damn buddies. It made him tough by association. So here's the thing. This was a big year for the trio. They were all 14 now, which meant this Ash Wednesday wasn't just some event to tick off their holy season checklist. It was the start of Lent. And when you turn 14, you got to step it up and participate especially at Catholic school. Frank explained that Lent commemorates the time that Jesus was starving in the desert for 40 days. 
And listen, there are different variations in how Lent is observed. It depends on your church or your denomination. All that. But he said it usually involves giving up a vice of your choice. Things like chocolate, television, and shopping. And many also give up eating meat on Fridays or some other form of fasting too. Basically, Lent is all about sacrifice. And that sacrifice is important because it's how you find God's love. But God's love was far from the minds of our trio, Helene, Davy, and Leon. And so after school that Ash Wednesday, they went over to Leon's house and celebrated Jesus' starvation in their own righteous manner. Helene went first. She stood on Leon's basement couch and announced to the others what she told Sister Greta, that she was giving up screens for Lent. Screens! For 40 days! Except then, she immediately pulled out her phone and posted a video of herself sticking her tongue out on TikTok. Well, cheers to that. Davey was next. His proclamation, he was giving up swearing for Lent, so cheers to that too. Then Helene and Davey turned to Leon, who mumbled that he'd promised to abstain from sweets. Helene and Davey chanted at him, Abstain, abstain, abstain! Until Leon nervously pulled out a Snickers and took a big old bite. They all fell into a fit of laughter, which ended abruptly when they noticed someone was standing at the top of Leon's basement steps, watching them. It was Leon's mom, and Leon's mom was scary. Ms. Boudreaux descended the stairs slowly. Each one of those kids was frozen, hoping she hadn't heard their theatrics. But they were, as Davy would say, shit out of luck. Mrs. Boudreaux's eyes were blazing with warning. But it wasn't with anger, or not only anger. This scary, deeply religious Cajun woman was now, herself, scared. Lent is no joke, she bellowed, and implored the kids to pray. Ask God for forgiveness, she said, and ask that he does it quickly, before Rougarou detected the stench of their sin. Because if that vile killing machine caught a whiff of them in that moment, it wouldn't stop until it fed. The teens had all heard of Rougarou before, of course. Like Frank had said, most kids in his area of NOLA were threatened by its wrath if they acted out or otherwise strayed from the Lord's path. Hell, festivals were even held in its honor. New Orleans and Rougarou were entwined. And like any good rebels, this trio had written it off as complete bull. They were all doing their best not to roll their eyes as Mrs. Boudreaux begged them to pray. They were even slightly relieved that Mrs. Boudreaux was too overcome with fear to be angry. But they hadn't noticed what she had, that outside, it felt darker than usual. That perhaps it was already too late. Rougarou, you see, brings the dank blackness of its swampy home with it wherever it goes. So they reassured her. They said, yes, Miss Boudreaux, and thanks, Miss Boudreaux, until she finally left them alone. But of course, they didn't drop straight to their knees in prayer. Only Leon, who was a little embarrassed, was worried about what his mom had said. And he made the rookie mistake of telling the others about that worry. They took it as well as you might expect. Davy actually said, shut the fuck up and relax, because, well, you know. Helene pointed out that even if Rougarou was real, it was a swamp thing. It doesn't come in the cities. 
Her mom had said it needed darkness and mist and gators. And besides, there were too many sinners to choose from here. How would it pick them over all the Mardi Gras revelers that had just blasted through town? It was true, Mardi Gras had ended just the day before. That event is actually tied to Lent, a celebration meant to instill revelry in worshippers about to embark on 40 days of sacrifice, which not a lot of people know. And what a lot of people do know is that the New Orleans Mardi Gras tends to be full of debauchery and blasphemy and any other E you can think of. So quite the last hurrah. All that's to say, Aline's reasoning was sound. Sound enough for Davy to agree, which meant that Leon agreed too. And that was that. Until Helene and Davy left, and Leon's worry came right back. As he did his evening chores, he tried to talk himself out of the rising dread he was feeling. His mom had sounded so panicked. He had felt the fear coming off her in waves. It was enough to make his imagination run wild, and not in a good way. But as Leon went to take out the kitchen trash, he remembered what his friends had also instructed. Shut up and relax. And you know what? It actually did make him relax. See, Leon knew he was a follower, and Helene and Davy were worth following. Even thinking about what they would say made him feel better. He tied up the trash and opened the door. Leon lived on a tightly packed block, lots of shotgun houses, a park on the corner. Usually the evening held enough activity and light pollution to trick you into thinking it was daytime. But tonight, the street lamps felt muted, like the blackness was closing in on them. Leon shuffled the curb where the trash pails were waiting for pickup. He dropped his bag in when a low growl rumbled from the side of his house. Leon didn't see anything there. He couldn't. The shadows were as deep as an ink blot. Another growl followed, louder this time. Leon wondered what it was, wondered if it was his neighbor's dog, Pickles, although it sounded bigger than Pickles angrier than Pickles. The thought wasn't a comforting one, and suddenly he had no desire to know what was in that murk. He moved to go back inside, but a single furious bark stopped him, turning his blood to ice. Trembling so hard he thought he'd fall over, he again looked towards the sound, towards the blackness, saw nothing, heard nothing. It was now as silent as it was dark. Only thing Leon could hear was the deafening thud of his own heart. Then, a massive fur and case figure shot out from the shadows with an ear-splitting howl and tore into Leon's flesh before he could even scream. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. 
You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Leon was late. Leon was never late. Helene and Davy kept glancing at their phone screens while they waited at the corner store. It was where the three friends always met up before school, so they could walk together. 7.30 a.m. came and went. So did 7.45, then 7.50. School was starting in 10 minutes and was a 20-minute walk. Davy and Helene didn't care much about being on time, but they did care about Leon. And Leon was never late. But Helene and Davy were too cool to show their worry, so they shrugged it off as sometimes things happen and went on their way. When they arrived at school, Sister Greta was outside waiting. They figured they were about to get chewed out again. But instead, she put her arms around their shoulders and said there was no school that day. And then... She told him exactly what had happened. Leon was dead. Not just dead, mutilated. Mrs. Boudreaux had found the tattered pieces of little Leon scattered around their lawn, like he'd been chewed up and spat out. Of course, Sister Greta didn't tell them this. They found out those details later through the social media grapevine, as their classmates exchanged rumors and theories about Leon's fate. One kid, whose dad was a cop, promised the inside scoop. She said Leon was so destroyed, his mom thought his guts were leftover Mardi Gras glitter. Another kid said that wasn't true. He lived next door and knew firsthand that Leon's head had been left untouched, with his mouth still open and a scream. Some thought a lion got loose from the zoo. Others claimed an alien laser obliterated him. Still more said it must have been a wild man with a chainsaw or something. Davy and Helene curled up together on a bench just outside of school, eyes locked into their screens as they watched the rumor mill churn, watching as their friend's death played out like some sort of urban legend over the internet. They hadn't even processed the fact that they'd never get to see Leon again. They were too busy wondering what everyone else was wondering. What kind of thing would do this, could do this, to a kid? Helene was the first to say it. The word croaked out of her bone-dry throat. Rougarou. Davy responded instinctively. No fucking way. Helene nodded, but both were quiet after that. They'd lost their usual swagger, because both of them secretly worried that they'd wind up as mincemeat too. And that worry kept on growing until the day of Leon's wake. The service was held at night in a small neighborhood church. Davy and Helene tried to blend in, cramming into a back pew with some of the other kids from school. But just a few minutes after the priest started talking, Helene felt the hair on the back of her neck raise. She got that certain feeling. You know the one. The kind where you're sure someone's watching you. Ms. Boudreaux sat in the first row of the chapel. And instead of watching the priest pray over the casket that held what little remained of her son, she was twisted around, staring daggers at Helene and Davy. Helene elbowed Davy, and the two shifted their gaze to the floor, 
but Ms. Boudreaux stood right in the middle of the service and stomped over. The entire chapel watched on as Mrs. Boudreaux laid into those kids, blaming them for Leon's death, cursing them. He was a good boy, and they turned him rotten. So rotten that Rougarou had smelt Leon's sin all the way from the bayou. Then she leaned in so close they caught a whiff of the mint she must have popped before the service. She told Helene and Davy, her voice full of conviction, that Rougarou wasn't finished. It was biding his time, digesting her poor son. When it was hungry again, it'd hunt them down, one by one. Of course, Davy and Helene got out of there as fast as they could. They headed to Davy's house, neither one of them wanting to be alone at that moment. It wasn't too late, only about ten or so, but the streets were unusually empty, almost like no one lived there at all. Helene noticed. Davy did not. He was handling his fear by cussing up a storm, rambling on about how there was no such thing as Rougarou. He'd bet his life on it. Helene, though, there was plenty in this world Helene could ignore or explain away. Even Leon's death, she'd been willing to write off as a tragic accident. But the way Mrs. Boudreau had looked down at them in that chapel, dripping with genuine visceral fear, something about her stare had awoken a part of Helene that she'd been trying to bury. A part that knew all this talk about Rougarou wasn't just the rambling of some overly protective paranoid mother. Before she knew what she was doing, she pulled out her phone, thrown it to the ground, and stomped on it. This shut Davy right up. He stared at his reflection in the cracked screen, shocked. Rougarou, Helene said. She knew she really, truly believed it this time. She said as much to Davy, who rolled his eyes. Helene, he said. I mean this in the nicest way possible. Please... He was sharply cut off as a snarling figure launched itself out of the darkness and sank its teeth into his throat. Helene screamed. The thing that had her friend shook its head with all its might, nearly severing Davy's neck in the process. She couldn't see what the attacker looked like because Davy's warm, fresh blood splashed her face, getting in her eyes. But she heard Davy gurgling for help. He was still gurgling when Helene was already running, as fast as she could. She wiped her friend's insides from her eyes and reached for her phone. But right, she trashed it. God damn it, she screamed. Then bit her tongue. This was not the time to take the Lord's name in vain. Maybe she just made things worse. A horse bark from behind told her, yes, yes, she had. She picked up her pace, dashing through her neighborhood's empty streets, screaming for help, banging on doors. But no one came to her aid, so she kept running. Up ahead, rising above the darkness that had settled on the town, were the spires of a church. It was her school's church. She never thought she'd be so relieved to see it. But she just had an idea, maybe even a life-saving idea. If she could get into that church and repent, she thought, maybe Rougarou would stop its assault. Maybe she wouldn't stink of sin anymore and she'd be freed. But when she reached the front door, it was locked. Helene screamed in panic frustration, banging on the wood. No one answered. No sign of Sister Greta. She looked into the night behind her. The streetlights were faint, 
the deep darkness constricting their glow. It was quiet, too, and the air thick and humid. Suddenly, it was so stifling it felt like she was standing in the middle of the bayou. There was nothing natural about this night she found herself in. A growl echoed from the darkness, and then a shape appeared. A person, maybe? Perhaps a man? It walked like one, with smooth strides. But soon as it passed under one of those feeble streetlights, Helene realized she was very mistaken. This man that wasn't a man was covered in wiry gray fur, with massive hands that hung at its side, dragged down by the weight of crimson-stained talons. And its head, it was a dog's head. A tongue flopped out the side of its panning mouth. The fur around its lips matted with fresh blood, Davy's blood. Big amber eyes stretched wide with deranged excitement. Rougarou, a horrific sight indeed. It stopped its approach, standing there, still, as its panting breath fogged up the air around its head like a deadly halo. And Lean was still, too. She knew once one of them moved, it was the beginning of the end. And she kind of wanted to put that off a while longer. The beast moved first. It took a step forward, just one. So Helene took one back. It took another. So did Helene. But this time, she hit the door behind her and remembered. She was cornered. As the beast took its next step, she suddenly lunged to her left, dashing towards the side of the church. The click-clack of claws told her Rougarou was giving chase. Helene raced through the church's rear courtyard. She had no idea where she was going. She just knew she had to go somewhere. And she knew Rougarou was near, too near. She wasn't safe, not even close. Then, out of the night, her savior emerged, literally. It was a huge statue of Jesus Christ, his arms spread wide in the air, welcoming the glory of God. The darkness couldn't touch the statue, just as Helene could not run Rougarou. She could feel it at her back, its evil stain making the air thick. So she did what she considered her only choice. She flung herself at Jesus' feet and prayed, prayed like she'd never prayed in her life. She begged for forgiveness, promised she'd repent and change her ways, swore off her phone and anything else she needed to swear off. She'd even take up Davy and Leon's Lent give-ups. No swearing, no sweets. As she looked up into Jesus' face, waiting for the city to wake up around her, for the night to feel less suffocating, for any sign that Rougarou knew she was now devout. But all she felt was the hot breath of the beast she'd been running from. Followed by the indescribable pain of its lethal talons slicing from her neck down to her tailbone. When Frank was finished, he polished off the last of his drink and looked at his watch. Two minutes until midnight, he said. Made it just in time. I asked if he wanted one more and he said it was better to do without. I nodded, thinking I got it. Sacrifice and God's love, right? But Frank just chuckled. Sacrifice, he said, is all well and good. But his motivation? Don't give a Rougarou a reason to hunt you down. And with that, he took his leave. I sat there a while, 
knowing I'd heard a story that would keep me up for the next few nights. I ended up ordering another round and mulling over Frank's tale. Now remember, I'm a skeptic, as my grandma charitably put it, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. But it seemed to me that folks around here had it all wrong. Giving something up just because you're scared of Rougarou isn't really a sacrifice, and it doesn't feel holy or devout. It just feels like common sense. So maybe Frank wasn't safe after all, and I haven't checked in on him to make sure he's still around. Because, well, I'd rather stay an ignorant skeptic than know that Rougarou is out there. Run, Fool! is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and At Will Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Kate Murdoch and produced by Abakar Adan. Editing by Matt Hickey. It was sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Creature vocalization by Terry Casburn. And artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Locasio. Special thanks to Lindsay Kilbride and our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levitt. Executive producers at At Will Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Guerin. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Sher, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>